Welcome to the Law in Sport podcast. I hope you're having a great week. If you love legal issues in sport and for today's purposes, esports, you're going to love this podcast. The podcast is aimed to try and make the law accessible, try and make sports law accessible, but importantly, find out about some of the key people who work tirelessly behind the scenes to keep the sector running, right? To help athletes, to help sports organizations, to help the brands, the media companies, the, all the little pieces that you may not. Um, on a day-to-day basis, think about. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, who is Will Della. He is a senior associate at the market-leading law firm for sport, entertainment and media, Bird and Bird, amongst other sectors that they work in. He focuses primarily on the commercial side of law, um, having advised some of the biggest names in sport, ranging from media rights, sponsorships, events, staging, um, advertising, merchandising. The reason why he's on today is one, he's a lovely guy if you've heard him talk at, uh, at our conference um, uh, last year. He's absolutely exceptional on the esports panel. He's always referred to as, oh, do you know Will Bird and Bird? He's a lovely guy. So that's the, normally the introduction that, that is in the people that I've met anyway, they say. So that's what we call you, Will the Nice Guy Della. If you ever want to get into WW wrestling, um, you, that's that's what you can do. I'm not sure I'd get too far as a wrestler with that. <laughs> with that name. I mean, maybe, sure. anyway, yeah. maybe, maybe it's like counter trend, right? Rather than the crusher, yeah. you can be the nice guy. Um, Will helped establish the rapidly growing esports practice at Bird and Bird. He's been across the sector. He's involved in, in, in various different uh, transactions for different organizations. And having had the pleasure of having Will as one of our speakers at the conference and had a number of chats with him privately, I wanted to get him on to talk about his perspective and his journey um, working on the legal side, particularly within, you know, in his perspective on comparing the sort of traditional sports and esports. So, Will, first of all, uh, thanks for joining. Um, how are you doing? Um Pretty good, thanks. So thank you for having me. Um, as I was saying before we looked on, I've got a slightly poorly toddler at the moment, so I'm, I'm ever so slightly, or, or possibly even more sleep deprived than normal. But um, aside from that, I'm all good and uh, delighted to be talking to you. <laughs> thanks, Will. Uh, yeah, so I wish your daughter uh, well very quickly. I hope she um, you know, recovers and I know how difficult that can be. So I really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time out. You know, when you're trying to juggle client deadlines as well as a poorly child, it can be extremely time consuming. Um now, you're kind of like, maybe we'll look back in 20 years and, you know, you're kind of in the position of, a, say, again, a John Taylor, your colleagues, John and Max, uh, many years ago in the type of work that you do in terms of, you know, being at the cutting edge of a um, what was, I would say, from a sports law perspective as well, uh, uh, underappreciated, underrespected sector, if we call it that, or industry. And um, now, fast forward to where we are now, six or seven years, and it's now the the sector that everyone talk one of the, you know the area that everyone talks about wants to get involved with. They recognise that it's attractive, and the IOC talk about uh, obviously esports and doing a whole bunch of work in that arena as well. Uh, whereas whereas before it wasn't the case. Can you talk about one why you got involved in esports and how that sort of process worked for you? Sure. Um, so, I mean. Very flattered you said that it was in, in the mould of a John Taylor or Max Duffy. I'm not sure anyone's in the, in the mould of a John Taylor <laughs> or Max Duffy apart from the two of them. But um, uh, yeah, so it, it started really when I was an NQ at Bird and Bird um, back in 2014. Um, I was always interested in the in the BD side of things, new areas we could go into, knew we were obviously like the you know, biggest sports practice in the city. Um, 
And John actually was particularly encouraging about trying to get into new areas. So he said, look, we do all this work across rugby, football, athletics, cricket, tennis, etc. But we what what's what, what don't we do and what what should we be doing? And he'd mentioned it at a sports group meeting and I sort of took it away and thought about it for a bit. I was like, well, actually, something a little bit off the wall that I'd been aware of, not because I'm necessarily a massive gamer, but just interested in sports and, um, well, sp- sport media and, and games to an extent, is that I was aware that esports was sort of a rising phenomenon. And that actually, the reason I flagged it was not because necessarily at the time it was a massive industry with, you know, billions of pounds going into it and loads of money to be made, but principally because um it threw up a lot of interesting and fairly idiosyncratic legal issues some of the some of which we might discuss i suppose in, in this podcast um but that it was a really nice area for us to be looking at because having all the sports regulatory sports commercial experience but also really good strong games practice this was a nice sort of melting pot between the two and was something that we were particularly i thought well positioned to um, an area that we were well positioned to advise in. Um, also, the fact that and you're right. The fact, <laughs> you're yeah, right well, in that. It, you're absolutely well, right. Hopefully, yeah. Um, and then the fact that also because we're an international firm, I think um, obviously sport is international, but esports is you know pretty much all esports tournaments or major esports tournaments have a strong international element. Whether it's um, because you know, the entire tournament is played online with people from different countries or because, um, you know, physical events draw together teams from across the globe usually to, um, to, to compete either in a, in a venue or online. It's, um, I think as well, having that, having that breadth of experience across sport, media and games, but also doing it internationally meant that it was something that was quite a good, quite a good area for us to get in at the ground level on. Um, to timestamp it, what sort, what year was that roughly? Yes, it was, it was probably just after I qualified. So 2014, 2015, probably. 2015. And so John said, that is interesting. He said, he's like, he was like it's not something that I've got too much experience in, but why don't you go out and sort of start meeting some people and, you know, go to some events and whatnot. And so I started rocking up at um, some of the fledgling sort of esports business community events. Um and at the time, there really weren't many lawyers around at all. Um, and without wishing to jump the gun on some of your, your questions later on, maybe, one of the interesting things was then when I was going out to people, it was, it was quite, there was a real aversion to lawyers or perhaps just to me um, with, you know, people thinking that they were sort of the, the blood sucking <laughs> um, corporate types trying to take money out of the industry when it's just trying to, trying to find its feet. Um, and a lot of what I was doing at the time was just trying to sort of subtly highlight to people that these are some of the issues you should be thinking about. And this is how we can not only help you to avoid problems that will, that will become very significant later on, but also really add value. Um, and, and so on that point, though, why do you think, because I think this is a, you know, an issue that the legal sector as a whole is facing, you know, mistrust, growing mistrust of lawyers, right, um, unfortunately, uh, in the perception that you know they're very expensive, you know that the you know are they really adding value? I don't think often that 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 um, 
depending on who the who's receiving that and how it's communicated and depending on what type of transaction they're in there's a there can be a real misunderstanding about the real value creation uh, uh aspect to, to to providing legal advice was it that you had there were experienced entrepreneurs or or um business people who had been either poorly advised or you know, had some bad experiences in the past perceptive that way or was it just you know a bunch of people who had actually never really hired lawyers before and just had a complete misunderstanding of 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 the work uh, and the advice that we provided and how that would happen principally the latter um and i think one of the one of the important things though is that you know a lot of our a lot of our traditional sports practice is based around advising rights holders so we've got a fairly um well a, a fairly um unique in terms of its breadth insight into the way that rights holders package up rights, how they commercialize their um, the assets that they have, and how they extract maximum value from them, and I think one one of the in, most in, some of the most interesting conversations, and in, particularly back then, were saying, right, well, this is how we've seen you know you you want to sell X Y Z inventory, but actually we see traditional sports rights holders package it up this way, and so this is how you could think about doing it differently. And those were those were some of the those for some for some of those in some of those initial conversations that was a real light bulb moment. They were like, oh, actually, these guys aren't just here to try and yeah, you know, write a say, you know, a policy on such and such and take a few grand and then you know run off into the sunset. <laughs> They're actually here to try and help us build a business. Well, um, do you not think? And I think this is where where I advocate for this type of approach from sports lawyers. Um, you know, particularly with with people, whether it's esports or, or traditional sports, as we call it, if if such a thing really exists anymore. Um, but the you know saying you know have that conversation, have the conversation about, and then try and explain to people why you can you know why how you can help, and it's not just about getting that legal work because obviously if you can help the market improve and become more sustainable, you have more work for lawyers right? yeah. because they can justify the legal spend. That's right. And I think, and actually that's one of the most interesting things we found is that in that, probably between 2014, 2017, it was a lot of just, you know, as you'd expect, like putting ourselves out there and having those conversations where a lot of people just say, you know, cutting through it all, we don't particularly like lawyers. Um, we're trying to just make some money at the moment, so please leave us alone. And then now it's, it's completely different. So it's really, they, the, the conversations are not sort of what is, you know, why do I need a lawyer? It's you know that they're 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 being proactive and asking the questions about what value we can bring and asking us to issue spot for them. And we now get far more queries in, um, sort of just cold queries in than we actually than we actually um, go out looking for work ourselves. So I'd like to think that that validates a lot of that early early work. Because I remember, I think it's so interesting, and you know, because I've always said, that, and again, if you look at this, and this is, you know, the, the I'd love to get your your what your initial impressions were, but the juxtaposition between esports and traditional sports was the thing that fascinated me initially. Having it was Ian Smith, who was obviously the Esports Integrity Coalition now, at the time was doing stuff with ESL. He was the first person to get a coffee at Waterloo Station. I remember it, and he was like, "I'm involved. I'm doing some consultancy work on integrity matters for ESL." And I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." We had a chat, and I thought, "Wow, that's so." I at the time I got excited because I thought, "Oh, if they're doing this um, in this sort of arena, which traditional sports lawyers don't really care about so much, it's really interesting when you're looking at governance, integrity initiatives, and stuff like that to cross compare." 
what is going on and with these more historic systems that have been you know instituted and whether or not there is an opportunity to to create a um healthier analysis of what the real the real fundamental issues are that having that sort of comparison uh and, I th- and then we ended up having a conversation so it was with him then a conversation with esl and then um uh, alex inglot who is now a commissioner in esports isn't he for is he for esl um, I'm not sure actually, but he's a, he's a commissioner now in esports. But he was at Sport Radar, David Lampitt, and then Andrew Nixon, who you know at Sheridan's. Yeah. We had we did our first panel, and I think that was in 2015 or 16. Mm-hmm. Was the first panel we did on esports, um, and again there it was kind of really interesting because you just had to explain what esports was to most people to begin with. <laughs> and that most of the conversation was about that. And we showed some sexy videos and everyone, went, Oh, this is really exciting. Yeah. Um, and then Mark moving forward. Now you're talking about, you know, from our perspective, we see the issues around like uh, Fnatic obviously just put out their um, safeguarding initiative um, and their policy, which is like a massive step. So what was your, when you were looking at um, the sector and you thought that initially, right, we do the gaming stuff, we do the sports sector. What was your initial thoughts? Was it a similar sort of thought pattern or was it something different that, that sort of captured your imagination? Well, I think I alluded to this earlier, but um, a lot of the, the fundamentals are really drawn from issues in traditional sports. So um, safeguarding is a good example. So safeguarding is a, a massive issue in traditional sports um and something that we do an awful lot of work in it's also an issue in esports but there's almost an additional degree of complexity because of the way that esports runs you know it's um very much you know online there's a lot of direct interaction between fans and players and coaches etc it's particularly attracted to a younger audience it's very interactive and so for all of those reasons it just means that there are these you can borrow from a lot of your experience in traditional sports but then it's just there are these extra sort of thorny issues to think about in an esports context, which make them interesting. So another one is around, uh, there have been, we did a couple of articles on this when we were first um, looking at esports back into 2015, 2016, around some of the issues around exclusivity that cropped up in a broadcast environment. So um, people sort of forgetting that, whereas in a traditional sport, for the most part, no one actually owns the sport, no one owns football. Um, in esports, someone does actually own the underlying IP and the game being played. Um, and what you can and can't do with it, it, do with it is dictated by the terms of use. And so that has led to some really interesting disputes, well, not disputes yet that I'm aware of, but <laughs> yeah. some really interesting um, issues and some, pre- I imagine, some pretty difficult conversations between um, uh people staging esports events based on a particular game and people that they think they've sold exclusive broadcast rights to because actually it turns out that they weren't able to grant those rights because the terms of use doesn't allow them to or people are actually accessing the game via a different way and watching live streams that way. Um, uh, would you say that because that, that was definitely the the big topic you know I, I went to give a lecture i won't say which institution i gave a lecture as an institution and I had a talk on esports and i said to him oh right so can i assume that you all understand the ip issues the intellectual property issues that arise from from esports and they went no we haven't had that conversation and i thought wow everyone was skipping ahead to yeah. you know how the competitions are organized without going through the sort of the basic because that always seemed to be quite interesting and 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 then obviously how how the market maybe you can describe this for listeners how the market has evolved because you've got obviously the league of legends model where riot control 
everything within that and then you've got all the 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 call of duty the counter strike the the where the the um uh, what are the other you you can help me here help me help my lack of knowledge is <laughs> well, shining through it's um, it's, fa- it's fairly disparate so i mean i suppose people normally t- point to you know the, the the massive league of legends leagues for example um as they are they are the big franchise league. So multi million Call of Duty is another one. Sorry, Overwatch is another one. Um and Call of Duty actually now. Um where there are these massive buy-ins to join a publisher, by which I mean the publisher of the game, sort of operated leagues, which operate in a fairly rigid structure. So you buy a long-term license effectively to participate in the league. Um, and that guarantees you a slot for a certain period. And then you are playing in what looks and feels very much like a traditional sports um league in lots of ways and then again depending on the attitude that the publisher takes um for the particular game there are various other different ways of setting it up so sometimes uh publishers will let people run their own esports tournaments just generally under their terms of use which will allow you to run events even with a prize but like only up to a certain level and then beyond that you have to go to the publisher to get consent so you know a lot of the you know the, the big ticket Big ticket, independently organised events by the likes of ESL, etc., will be um, done under licence from the publisher and um, to make sure they can run them. Um, and there's sort of anything and everything in between, so it's really quite a disparate environment. But it's not mm. so. There's not the outside of the major franchise leagues. There's not necessarily. It's it's a much more what's the word um, sort of pick a mix approach to to how people consume esports and it would depend very much on what the community that um plays and watches the game actually wants and how they want to engage with it and so so with that as well then i I presume then you you we look at any other sector sport in particular in this or or certain sports as they're growing you end up in a situation where if you're trying to organize a team so you've you've got the training so there's a lot of training that's required to be good at esports comp- competitions and yeah. games, um, as I understand it. I'm pretty bad at most of them. <laughs> I love the thought of of doing them, but I'm just terrible. Because uh, um, um, some of them, like League of Legends, is that, like super complex, oh, yeah. right? Like as in, it's so like just watching it makes your head spin. Yeah. Um, and so you got the training. Um, you know, I know that you know teams how close you are to servers. Um, you know, I'm trying to think what's been said publicly and what hasn't been said publicly on our webinars. But you know, some people who spoke at our conferences before have described the issues that they've had with being in the right type of environment yeah. locally, where they were getting the right type of broadband, the speed, because the latencies and stuff like that can make a big difference in terms of your ability to train. The 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 tech can be expensive, I'm presuming. Then, if you want the best computers, etc. Yeah. Um. So so then, if that's the case. Then you've got obviously the professional teams like the Fanatics, the um, Excels, the others who are there who've got those infrastructure focusing on the the major competitions and got like like their their tiered. Is that where they have tiered teams as such? Like like a quite often they, like have, a, they have sort of academy teams that play in lower level leagues, but yeah, within the within the sort of franchise structure. Yeah, so you've got that, and then you've got these other like sort of people aspiring to be them, um, and some being closer to them and some being like not as professional and that becoming, you know, with all the issues you talked about, safeguarding, no doubt, representation contracts, um, uh, all the other, is that right? That all the other issues we'd see, say, for example, in football start to become mimicked essentially across these 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And then there, there are sort of, and again, I'd say there is just this additional layer of complexity. So if you take a player contract, for example, um, you know, typically in football, for example, it's carved up with your playing services and your image rights and um, they're tre- treated, dis- they might be treated discreetly. So you might have an image rights company that, you know, set up for the player that 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 you license their image rights through if you're a club or or whatnot. Um but it's it's and then there are obviously extra layers of complexity beyond that, but that's the sort of essential structure. Whereas in esports, there are just some really weird and wonderful um additional elements to consider, like streaming revenue, for example. So uh depending on the profile of the player and the balance of negotiating power, you might find that if if a player is really, really a really popular streamer and they earn a lot of money through Twitch or whatever it might be or whatever the platform of their choice, um, that the team looks to take, you know, they say right, you can join our team and that means we'll enter you into these tournaments that we're we're able to participate in and we've got these other guys on our team. If it's you know mm-hmm. Counter Strike for example, that are fantastic, but we want a cut of what you're you know what you're generating from your personal streams or it might be vice versa. So the player might be negotiating to say, well, actually, the what you know, team XYZ, um, I, I think I can grow your audience pretty significantly with my following. So I want a cut of the streaming revenue that you guys generate from your own, you know, team branded Twitch streams and that kind of stuff. So there, there, there are sort of quite a quite some interesting additional considerations, mm. um, and particularly as there's not the commercial model to my mind anyway from top to bottom is still pretty fluid um and one of the issues that a lot of teams face i think is just trying to crack the nut of how to how to capitalize and generate revenues from the the the, the tens of millions of viewers they've got so this this is this is the thing i find really fascinating as well because you know you did a fantastic um yeah, your your firm did a fantastic esports event, and you got everyone together and stuff, which was great. We could all now, in theory, we can all meet up again, which is great. But the um, you know, and speaking to some of the people there, not mentioning names, and you know, people who are very senior in the let's say in the sector, right, are very honest and transparent about how they perceive it in terms of where it's at in this stage of evolution, and they normally seem to be quite brutal in terms of saying, right, we think these competitions are well run. They're really investable. They're scalable. Once you got into a, you know, one of these fantasies, these other ones could be great for mm-hmm. us. But as you're saying, it's in a state of flux. It's quite fluid. We're not quite sure it's going. So we have to be sort of on our feet and assessing all the time. And then you've got so they're the like people like yourselves and the you know the um, yeah and the fanatic and you know her, 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 all the other you know just go and have a look at all the other speakers, um, but also many other people. And then you've got the press. <laughs> you know the people who are really excited about it mm. almost like in, in football when they, with football transfers they talk everything up and you know a player contract would be worth half the amount in practice than what it would be necessarily reported to because they've got all the add-on bonuses yeah. is that kind of you know your interpretation of how the narrative is around esports particularly from a from a legal perspective but more broadly just in, from the business community yeah and I, think actually, I actually think one of the um one of the biggest changes since since we've been involved in esports as a firm is that there is this progression to, towards a more steady calendar um, of events, and it makes it makes teams that have the teams or whoever it might be, anyone looking to get involved in esports, 
um, those that have a sort of sound strategy and can actually now plan around what is a more steady competition calendar um, and a little bit more predictable. It makes them far more investable proposition. Yeah. So if we were talk, having this conversation sort of seven or eight years ago, I think um, one of the biggest difficulties people would be, and it's, it's still it's still an issue to an extent, but people would be saying, well, we really don't know what we're going to be playing in next year or the year after that. Whereas as that starts, to, as, as the esports ecosystem uh, starts to um, crystallize a little bit more, I mean, there'll always be new stuff popping up all the time, mm. which is, you know, partly springs out of the fact that the games industry just develops at such a phenomenally rapid pace. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, it is, I, I would say my perspective is that it is easier now to build a business with a, you know, five year plus strategy far easier now than it was seven years ago, seven or eight years ago. So the conversations moved from how many eyeballs do you have? Maybe we can see if we can monetize it to, hey, actually we can monetize it and this is how we're monetizing it. And this is where we're creating, you know. Yeah, I would say it's, I, yeah exactly. I, I would say it's still that the, they, they, they know sort of what they're going to be doing, but it's still a ma- ma- matter of trying to extract the maximum revenues from it. And I think actually sponsors are starting to become live to the fact that um, a lot of the stuff that, um, esports industry sort of stakeholders and, and you know, the stalwarts that have been around in it for you know, years and decades have been saying around, well, look, this is a really interesting demographic for you to be involved in. It's you know a young demographic who's normally quite an affluent demographic that is keen to engage in new technology that will engage with brands that you know appeal to them at their level, but can be quite disengaged from traditional media, for example that this is a really interesting audience for you to try and capture in a fairly unique way for you to do it. And that seems to be starting to permeate a bit. So do you think the pandemic helped in that regards? Because yeah, um, I'm sure, I'm sure know, exactly. all, the other, all the other models all fell away a little bit. Yeah, uh, exactly. I'm, 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 I'm sure I, I think it has. Um, and I think it has, it's actually, if, if nothing else, I, I would, I would think that, and anecdotally, I think it has made sponsors, realize they need to think a bit think quite creatively and esports is a really interesting platform for them to be able to do it um one i was talking to a major consumer account a senior lawyer at a major commercial a major consumer brand sorry about two months ago and we were just talking about some esports um sponsorship issues they were they, they were they were looking at and he said to me that they, th- this this particular brand is involved in sponsorships across a range of areas of sport, entertainment, all sorts of things. And he said, in terms of bang for their buck, esports was by a country mile their most um, valuable, gave them the most RFP. Sorry, um, uh, what, what, don't, don't mean RFP, I mean a, a value for money. Yeah, um, yeah return, ROI. ROI, return, thank right, you. That's the thank one. you. Um, so, the, that, so that's really interesting because one of the, I remember going to a talk and I always like to cite where I went to talks. Um, I went to talk, and I think it was like Alex Kellum, Louis Silkin, had organised a talk, and I can't remember for the life of me. And I knew one of these things you should write down the speaker's name. There was a lady there who was involved in the Olympic movement as a sponsor, and then she went to an agency, and she was saying, this is six years ago, seven years ago, roughly at the same time, she was like, look, sport is not the only show in town. <laughs> Even though she held the sports budget, right? She the clients she worked for were all investing in sports. She went. We look at with any of our clients. We look at sport, uh, particip- mass participation events, and then basically third sector. 
right, for when we're looking at sponsorship initiatives. And so to what degree do you think that the sort of esports with some of these brands when they are looking and comparing, and obviously we might have slightly different graphics, but no doubt there will be some overlap as well, that they look at this and go, Ooh, you know, why why are we investing in sport if if you know it's getting more expensive? Um, you know, not getting the returns. Uh, I can't say who, but someone who worked at a sports organisation said to me when we were discussing some of the problems. They say that in this area, they said that particularly football suffers from a rich parents complex in the sense they've never had to <laughs> like, like everyone's just said, do you want to sponsor this? They say, yeah, how much? And you go, it would be 20 million. They go, okay, cool. And there hasn't been that much sort of granular analysis. Do, what, what's your sort of take on that? Do you think it, that traditional sports going to suffer in that regard or, or is it going to make those traditional sports sort of raise their games in terms of how they're reporting and how they're engaging um, or both? <laughs> From our experience, that I would say it's, you know, I would say it's the latter. So I don't think traditional sport is going anywhere. I think traditional sport is always going to be, you know, I don't think I don't think esports needs to be cutting into traditional the, the pie of traditional sports. If you see what I mean, um, I do think that esports provides some really interesting opportunities for traditional sports brands to engage with their fans differently, to engage with younger fans. So one of the things I thought was and it got a lot of coverage at the time, was a few years ago when City launched their kit through FIFA. Um, that was obviously pretty cool. Um, and then a lot of a lot of different traditional sports entities are approaching it in different ways. So some have gone absolutely, you know, in with both feet. Um, so buying, you know, buying up to like Schalke, for example, bought a, a franchise slot um, in League of Legends. I think I might be wrong. I think they've actually recently sold it. Um, but you know, that was obviously an example of someone just going right. We're going to go for the full-on sort of inverted commas authentic approach of um, getting involved, getting involved in a in something which is completely out of our normal day to day, and trying to get us get ourselves ingrained as much as possible in esports. Others have taken a slightly more iterative approach. So, you know, they might have a couple of FIFA players. Um, We've done some interesting work with Wolves on their Rocket League team, um, which for those of you who don't know, it's sort of football with cars. So um, sort of the next the next evolution, I suppose, of, of getting involved with um, like a football game. Um, but, and I, th- I think it does, I think it will be increasingly important for traditional sports um, bodies to think really carefully about how they engage with younger fans. I do think esports is a really powerful way of doing it. But I don't think, as I was, you know, to bring it around to what I said earlier, I don't think esports necessarily needs to be you know, absolutely competitive with traditional sports. Well, I think, yeah, it's a great point that you've raised. And I was just thinking about this, which is, again, we talk about it in absolutes and I'm guilty of this. I hate people to do it and I'm guilty of it myself pretty much every day. But the, um, well, hate's a strong word, but yeah, I, I always complain that people talk in absolutes all the time. And I find myself doing it regularly, which is if you were to break down the number of viewers, for example, for, and boxing is my sport, but say, for example, plenty of people out there, you know, when they thought it was going to be the Fury AJ fight, that they were talking like 20 million pay-per-views would be a great number. If they got to 20 million, you go, with all the people in the world, 20 million pay-per-views, obviously some's on free-to-air and stuff like that. It's not a huge number. And if you looked at, say, I was at the League of Legends final in Paris um, uh, a few years ago, which was so cool. Um, you know, I got invited to go uh, with VT at, um, uh, at Riot Games. Um, 
just to see it, right, to understand it more. And it was, you know, it was it was all in French. I didn't understand anything that was being said, but I could get the gist of what yeah. was going on. I mean, and it the, was, the game's complicated enough was. Without, the, uh, without the language. Yeah, important, yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. Being in another language that, that I don't speak. I was, and I was thinking there, and unfortunately, everyone else spoke French. <laughs> and I was just like, can someone please tell me what the hell's going on? But the one, one thing I did think that was interesting was that how they controlled the production. They viewed it as like when they construct a video game. They controlled it like they would control a video game, as if like it was like the film, you know, almost like a production of a film. It was it was better produced than any sports event I'd ever been to in terms of the sound system, in terms of the visuals and everything else. I thought, whoa, this is pretty impressive, right? If a traditional sport could get hold of this type of production, right, right, then it could really enhance it. But even then when we were there, and as great as it was now, this great community – I looked on YouTube at the time, and I think like, and I know it was YouTube. It wasn't Twitch. I didn't have the numbers for that, but I think there was like 400,000 people that were tuning in live mm. to watch it on YouTube. And I remember thinking, "Wow, I thought it'd be more than that." You know, given how popular the game is, I thought it'd be what well, still a significant yeah. number, but it's not that much, right? So you can see where when we're talking in terms of football fans and how many people actually pay to watch football, pay to have a jersey and stuff like that, it's nowhere near the number of people who necessarily participate. Um, in the sport, the um, so I can there's a long winded way of saying, yeah, you can see that basically that if you actually to break into the like grander detail that who's engaging, who's paying, these numbers are actually much smaller than what we see when we say there's how many two million yeah. billion people participating in sport or engaging yeah. in some way within football. For example, I mean, it, it also depends on, I mean, like concurrent live views of a of a of a, of a YouTube feed, I suppose, for an isolated event is is, is one thing. I mean, you, you do get. There are all sorts of stats that fly around. I mean, there was there was that stat around how more people watched League of Legends World's Final it was about three years ago than watched the NBA Finals across the seven games or something like that. Um, so it's it, it depends on the stats you read. But I do there's, there is to pick up on one point you raised. There is a really interesting topic around around broadcast because it's obviously it is such a fundamental part of how sport. Um, or professional sport operates and, and well actually not just professional sports it, it, it filters through to all levels of sport but broadcast rights broadcast fees are just so fundamental to the way the traditional traditional sport runs um but yet in esports you have these incredible viewing figures but there is this question about how or whether you should monetize them i mean like the thought from I mean, my perspective on it and someone who is someone who's you know really avid um you know, esports enthusiasts as a fan might say might, might might think differently, but my perspective on it is that it seems to be like anathema to most or to to ninety nine point nine percent of esports fans that you would pay to watch you, that you would do pay per view to watch an esports event. Um, well, that's the general um, perception anyway. But you wonder whether there is a whether that could happen one day. Um, yeah, yeah. So if that, that, I think that's fascinating because, again, you know, if you looked at it from a publisher's perspective, right, the big, the, when this is what the conversation I first had when we came into came to this space, having been involved in the, the sort of a tech startup, I was always going to these talks. I remember a guy giving a uh, a sort of elevator pitch somewhere who was involved in, I can't even remember what the company was, but they were turning over silly money as a games company. They, you know, as in they had more money than they could knew what to do with and they just developed a new title and they were just looking to try and look at cool ways to to, to create excitement about this thing it's a very impressive it wasn't Ubisoft I'm trying to think who it was it's one of the big publishers anyway uh, at the time that 
I was relatively unknown to me, but then you found out who they were. You're like, oh, you're the guys behind, you know, all these titles. And for them, you know, back then, I know it's changed now with the franchises, but then it was still a drop in the ocean where they were going to generate in revenue from esports. What they were looking at was about engagement and fan engagement. And that was their, you know, building up brand loyalty and, and that type of stuff, or the in-game purchases and things like that, as opposed to the competition itself. And I think, you know, from what you're saying, it still was, that thing hasn't quite yet been squared away in terms of... Yeah, exactly. And that is, it's a, I mean, I think that is the, like a pretty fundamental but but moving target really is where does the line where where do you draw the line because i mean esports grew out of i mean you could say esports grew out of um publishers wanting to you know get more eyeballs on their games more people buy it and you know do the in-game transactions and everything else that goes with it um and that actually now that you know Obviously, some teams became so successful at that that they managed to do it professionally. And then uh, the franchise leagues developed out of that where publishers actually went, well, actually, we we want to be able to fund the op- operating this thing to a significant level and generate some cash from it ourselves, so charge franchise fees. But whereas traditional sports has had decades to figure out where the line should be drawn between you know who gets what slice of the, the big sort of commercial pie for a league or a tournament, I think esports is still um, is still a little way off um, reaching equilibrium as to what makes the what makes the industry sustainable for everyone. So, what, what makes it worthwhile for the publishers to invest in producing events? Um, what makes it worthwhile for, for third party event organisers to actually take a license? What makes it worthwhile for the teams and to actually make sure that everyone, um, you know. If not, if not on an absolutely even footing, it, it's sort of it's economical for for the whole ecosystem. Yeah, it's so interesting. Now you've, you got me thinking then because you go right as you were building out the sort of where people were um, how it evolved, and you go right. You got the, as you're saying, you got the teams that become professionalised and the likes of Fnatic and others who can have a pull power themselves, right, and bring a lot, you know, contribute more than just just being a participant. Likewise with the athletes who are particip- who are playing, as you were saying earlier with the feeds. There's a point where actually the personalities get so strong they're drawing people in. And at that, at that point, the dynamic ch- shifts and change somewhat. And likewise, no doubt, with the meteorites um, position that you're talking about, it becomes a similar thing, with which is it will get to the point where, you know, like a traditional sports where some had to pay to be on traditional broadcast, they've got so much they can, you know, essentially the, the, the broadcaster can either commercialize through pay per view, but particularly through advertising, which makes it, you know, worthwhile then. Um, the one thing that I thought that makes it even more complex from from this is say for example you've got commonality of issues um with, with in traditional sport i know you have some with uh uh say for example with uh match fixing you know the, and, and betting right there's some time but one of the problems i'm not sure if, I'm the, if i've got this right but one of the problems this seems to be to me that the games can be fads right so they can have like so say for example and maybe it is like like traditional sport in terms of people play football at a younger age then they start to move into like sort of more viewers they go to the game you know maybe there is a just had a life cycle of someone but <coughs> say for example uh when riot launched valorant right so they've got valorant a new title that can you know catch a wave and be really popular how long that shelf life is until something else that comes up or 
you know, it's an interesting one to think about, right? It's an added dynamic, whereas in saying basketball, certain sports, basketball, American football, the sports are still going to be there, right? People are still going to play those games for a long time. It may get less or more popular. Whereas in, from a commercial entity, as a publisher, if you're not getting any traction with your title, or you just decide, well, you just wanted to go in a different direction, you just cut the title. <clears throat> and then the competition's gone. Yeah, no, no, I, I get that. Um, I think you, you could probably, you could point to CSGO, so Counter-Strike and um, League of Legends as examples of games that haven't, haven't evolved out of all recognition for for quite a significant period of time, but are still you know phenomenally popular. Um, at, as examples of how actually that it is, if if you crack the nut, it is possible to make games or, or esports um, based on a game that doesn't actually. Or StarCraft is another one actually that um, that can, that can run for years and years and years and years and years um, without seeming out of date and still being compelling um to esports fans and is that the case that you think in 100 years time it will be like football in that regards where you have it's the tradition it's the culture it was the tough thing i picked up at the league of legends which was there was this culture that was there right that like in a football stadium and stuff like that they had their chance yeah yeah i mean I, I think that's right i mean without wishing to get too sort of meta <laughs> um you could say <laughs> i mean like sport changes iteratively over time right mm. so rules change to make the game um either fairer or more engaging um or sometimes you know, you know for example like the introdu- introduction of var um a friend of mine keeps advocating they increase the goal sizes in football um, you know, that that kind of thing so like sport <laughs> you know, the fundamental sport yeah. is the same um but it's you make iterative changes to it over time yeah and is that necessarily completely different from saying like Counter-Strike, they've launched a new graphics package you know, you know, three mm. years down the line. So it's the, same, it's, the same, it's the same DNA of the game, but it's just being improved upon. So there's another level of this, isn't there, right? Because you've got the game's consoles yeah. themselves, right? And the competitive nature of the titles and what yeah. consoles they're on. You know, like, like as in, you know, there's certain exclusive deals that go on PS first or go on... Um, uh, Xbox or whatever it is, right? That they're going on to all on the what was the Google thing they were trying to do the online oh, yeah. thing that I don't think it really don't think it really got that much traction. But the the you've got that added level of complexity, mm-hmm. right? Well, I guess you could argue, I guess to a certain degree, because say for example, it's slightly different. Where say for example, in football, using you know you've got stadium owners, so people who own the stadiums and they can be the clubs as well. But currently, we don't have, and maybe that would be the evolution where publishers actually invest in the tech and actually start to develop their own consoles. But no doubt there'd be competition law <laughs> immensely. You go, but you can see, you can see there's a, there's a, there could be an incentive at some point where publishers say we don't want to be reliant on a Microsoft or an Apple, or as was the dispute with uh, what was the the Apple Store dispute with. Um, yeah, with Epic, right? That the, the maybe they say actually we don't want to wait for you, and we actually need to control that ecosystem ourselves in order to to keep this going for longer. Because you know, it's just an added it's just, it's just an added element. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's probably I mean, I'm I'm, I'm, ta- I'm taking the parallel of traditional sports an extreme, obviously, and like football looks a lot more like football a hundred years ago than you know than some games <laughs> do that were only released ten years ago. Um, so, so I, I, yeah, I, I do absolutely get that. But I suppose what I'm saying is that I think it's 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 being careful about saying 
um, well, I think it's perfectly possible to build a, mm-hmm. a game which has a legacy, even though it is developed and added to over time or might shift platforms. Um, platform is actually a really good. I think I think that must be games that are completely cross-platform must be a massive headache for competition organisers. Like I saw, I think it was the FIFA Worlds last year, or it might have been UK anyway, but there was a, I think the final featured one guy who's special, who's, who, who is a, his, his spe- he, he really is a, a PlayStation player, the other guy's an Xbox player. So they played two successive rounds where <laughs> they had to play one another's consoles. Um, and that's obviously an interesting fix, but it's yeah, really tricky. It's, it's tricky, right? And it means it means that it's it's uh, those. Mm. If you think about across the whole games industry, I mean, esports is essentially yeah. like competitive video gaming, right? So any any game mm. can be played. Pretty much any game can be played com- competitively between two people. It's a bit like so golf, sort of then, isn't it? Or racket like specifications, or you know, you could see it like as in it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tech, tech specifications for 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 rule setters and esports, yeah, is, really challenging, is difficult. Trying to trying to trying to ensure that there's um, enough standardisation to make sure that the competition's fair, whilst allowing people to a degree to use their own equipment. You know, some people might want to use their own mice or use their own keyboards, but they have to comply with certain specs and that kind of stuff. Could you see a, a, a scenario, right? Because I would argue that the esports is more akin, rather than to let's say the Olympic movement and, and that structure, is more akin to the sort of the American franchise closely like as we've seen with some of the i know there's a spectrum there and maybe that will change over time again who knows but could you ever see there being sort of like a uh, maybe there is one already but a, 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 let's say a globally recognized every two or four years world esports competition with the major t- titles or is that there's too much you got too many conflicting interests to be aligned um it's i think it's tricky um i think i mean what the first question I would start with is what 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 games go into it? So that yeah, because always though they're coming back to your earlier point. The motivation would be greater revenue for media rights broadcasts, right? Because it would be more popular. Because you could get the slots in, you know, all the stuff that the Olympic movement uh, in particular does so well, right? In terms of monetizing that, you know, it's the European Super League arguments. Um, in terms of getting the media rights, so the the motivation would be, oh, actually, we can make a lot more money, and then initially it would be the more established brands that would do it, and then you'd have an entry system. Potentially, I mean, it would be, it would be riddled with complexities. But yeah, I do, 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 I do get it, and um, I actually think, and actually, that's, you know, I can't, can't talk about it in detail, but I think what was really good about the IOC project um, for the for the Olympic virtual series was um, starting with on the basis that it's it's games that are um, replicating traditional sports just means that it's um, it was a sensible it's like a sensible first step for, for seeing whether that kind of thing mm. has a you know, has legs Um and I think that does. I, yeah, I, intuitively, I think it does. I think people like competition, like just any form of competition. You know, like. Uh, and I was listening to. I think it was the Brownlee brothers who were talking about uh, the one where they had to do. They were doing the treadmill rather than running. They had to do a treadmill for 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 a virtual uh, run, which yeah, which I thought was really cool. Part yeah, of that and then the other, the other. I suppose the other thing you've got to think about it though is in a 
if you wanted to have a a, a sort of an esports World Cup, whatever you call it, um, you'd have to you'd have to think pretty carefully about whether the whether there's an, whether the audience is not too segmented to actually want it, because whereas and this this is total sort of um, supposition on my part, but say for example, you know. I, I like sport, so I like football, cricket, rugby, tennis, whatever. So there's a decent chance that I'll flick onto the Olympics and I'll, I'll like most of the stuff that's on because I'm interested in it. Mm-hmm. But there's no, not necess- it's not necessarily that it follows that if you like League of Legends, that you will necessarily also like Counter Strike and FIFA and Call of Duty. So mm-hmm. it's whether whether the whether the fan base is not too siloed as to make it desirable to do it in the first place. Yeah, I think that's well. Here's the thing, right? I know that no one's, as far as I'm aware, that I've spoken to anyway, and that's not everyone. But I've spoken to a lot of people who's got any data on why people watch sport, including why they watch the Olympics. And that's the thing where I think is the real telling part, right? Because a lot of people will watch it. For, there's multiple reasons why people watch it. But it'll be because their parents are watching it, because uh, their family members are watching it, because there's nothing else on. Was less of a, less, you know, more of an issue now than it was before. Uh, bef- less, yeah, uh, than it was before because you were they didn't have all the other distractions. But it, it, it is interesting to see. You, you could argue if they created it in a pro- like again any good uh, media broadcast. Essentially, if you could create enough excitement about it and pitch it in the right way, um, you know, people like to complete. Because I always think like the Paralympics, what Channel Four did for me was like highlighted something that I've never really appreciated before which is when they took the Paralympics, they explained the te- they did such a great job of explaining why what we were seeing was technically difficult. And from a sports fan perspective, I loved it. Like for me, I actually enjoyed watching the coverage more than I watched the Olympics because a- in the Olympics, there was a lot of assumptions that you already understood the base mechanics of why someone was able to run faster, jump higher, do that. And you were left going, oh, it's all more about the personality than it was about the execution. Whereas in the Paralympics, and I wonder if uh, in esports is a similar thing in the sense that if you, you know if someone had explained why it's technically difficult and they did a good job of that coverage, it would make it more. Pretty. Anyway, I'm getting into loads of theories there's about actually, this. Yeah. Honestly, I'm thinking in a hundred hundred years time, whether or not well, we will see it. I think that, that is that would have to happen if you were trying to if you were trying to make it um, engaging to an audience that um, that isn't already interested in the applicable games. That would have to happen. But there have been some. There have been some pretty decent documentaries about esports, which go into a bit bit of detail about training regimes and the specifics of the games and how they work, but in a quite an accessible way that that, that, that are really good. So BBC mm. Three did one following Excel, um, who are sort of big London-based yeah. esports team, also in yeah. the uh, the LEC, the big um, European League of Legends franchise league, and it follows them for a, it's only I think it's a five-parter, but follows them for a season. And again, this just does a good job of giving a sort of inside scoop on how how it all works. Um, because there are, you know, if you're a, if you're a traditional sports fan, you nothing about esports. There will be elements of it that are really familiar to you, like training regimes. Albeit, it's interesting to see how they train differently, talking tactics, but then also the environment in which they're doing it. So when they go to play at Worlds, they or sorry, when they go when they go to play. Um, uh, tournaments, they tend to hire a house and or you know, and then rig it out in really really high tech stuff that will mimic what they'll be using in the applicable tournament, and they'll train intensively on that and then go over to the venue. And it's just stuff like that, which is quite an interesting insight. Um, uh, which which I think yeah, 
to draw parallels with your your experience in watching that that Channel Four coverage could be is, is pretty pretty important for trying to engage an audience. Doesn't well, say say Formula for, Formula One um, uh, Netflix mm, oh, documentary. Really um, yeah, loads of people I know who had no interest in Formula One prior to that documentary because it was on Netflix. They they were watching the documentary Drive to Survive. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, I love Formula One. It's so great. It's so like, because it made it what was again inaccessible, accessible. And so you think there's a job to be done there. In terms of well, one, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I wanted to come on to in terms of um what you then see is like you know, you've identified already that the, what you see as the real issue is this thing to grapple with, which is rare is a real monetization point, who are doing and do it more successfully than others. What are the other areas you think in in that the, either you're acting on or the stuff that you're watching where you think, you know, this is really interesting in terms of like over the next year, two years, that I think is going to be a more sort of a critical point for people in the sector to, um, or industry, as I say, rather than sector, but uh, uh, who are, um, you know, need to be on top of. Is it the safeguarding? Yeah. Or- oh, I mean, where to start? I mean, in some, in some respects, like one of the interesting things has been, <laughs> like, generally speaking, the level of professionalization is increasing significantly. So, um, you know, we, one, one of our clients is an esports agent and the quality of contracts that we that we receive from from other teams has, has increased significantly from where it was four or five years ago. So generally speaking, I think the industry is professionalizing. Um, I think the need to be mindful of the fact that they don't just operate in a in a sort of sporting environment, but also in a in a tech sort of digital environment. So that comes with it things like you know online harms is going to be probably be quite big for 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 a variety of e esports industry stakeholders. Um, safeguarding you've already picked up on um, it's a a big issue and um, the industry yeah. It, it's it's some it's it's something that you know. I say the likes of Fnatic have done a, a great job to to grapple it, um, you know, as quickly as they have. But um, it's something that any 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 large entity involved in esports needs to get. Well, not not just large entity, but anyone um, with a sort of meaningful involvement in esports needs to get across. Um, and do you think that extends to sort of athlete welfare as well? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, yeah, I would I would capture that. I'll put that under the same bracket, really. Um, I'd say it's interesting, possibly interesting changes in the broadcast environment. Um, and it's sort of tied to that monetization point, which I think a lot a lot of my sort of perspective on where the industry goes, what the legal issues are, will, will stem from that. But, you know, whether there will be more competition in the broadcast market and how that changes the way that um, esports media rights are packaged up sold do you do you, do you think there's so many things do you think you can see a thriller type uh type thing with like jake paul going into boxing where they just go hey we've got these big personalities rather than do the organized stuff we're just going to do like you know one-off battles as such yeah 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 or such yeah exhibition matches that kind of stuff yeah and I, I mean i mean i'm 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 not aware that it does happen but i'm sure that it does um but yeah like all, all, all that's all that sort of stuff but also i think there are you know, Microsoft developed their Mixer service, which obviously wasn't a tremendous success. Um, so that fell by the wayside. But then if you've got, you know, Twitch, YouTube gaming, Facebook gaming, then um, Tencent have launched Trovo, which is another big streaming platform. And obviously, like, Tencent are a fairly sort of hefty operator. 
it'll be interesting to see whether there's how that whether there's sort of more competition in the broadcast market um and how that it sort of changes the dynamic further downstream in other areas of the industry and that is i think yeah well well great point because you know with the it's not like those brands you just mentioned aren't under various competition law law, law battles at the moment and or just government intervention both in the US across Europe in terms of how they control markets because that 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 you know the you know the media not only the media space but I guess the the tech landscape how that evolves is going to be you know really telling uh, so you know I wonder whether Microsoft would have been better off essentially setting up a um a different company and not not like basically powered by Microsoft as opposed to or doing, doing something that was a bit more subtle, let's say. Uh, right, right. So then people might have thought it was cooler. Um, and then what advice would you give? Finally, what advice would you give to you know, like in traditional sport, you know, there's a lot of people who would love to, you know, aspiring lawyers, current lawyers who would love to be advising sports clients. Likewise, in esports, I would argue that you've got exactly the, the same, if not more nowadays, coming through who would, who would love to be involved. What sort of advice would you give as a, you know, either someone you'd like to work opposite, let's say, or yeah. colleague you'd like to work with in the sector? Um, I would say that in, in esports, it's almost more important than traditional sports, but I would say like get to know the sector a bit um, before sort of sticking your head above the parapet. Um, because the hardest thing I find about advising in esports by far is actually just keeping up with the pace of change in the industry. Um, so we've got a team of people, a team of trainees here who actually pull together like a monthly digest of everything for like the whole global bird and bird esports, um, team. So like, I think keeping current is, is a big one. Um, I'd say actually there's, it's probably, you know, esports and traditional sports are areas where um, you tend to be, you know, clients don't tend tend to have teams of hundreds of lawyers um, in what can be quite like a, at times quite like maybe a faceless, slightly faceless relationship. Um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all, it's just the nature of some of the organisations that, you know, you know, the size of organisations in other sectors. So in, in traditional sports and esports, you tend to be... Um, liaising with quite small teams so it's about being able to be sort of open and genuine and actually develop a a real relationship of trust with your client is probably um the most important thing one one of the most important things as well as getting to understand the sector because you tend to be even at a really junior level you have quite a lot of direct client exposure which you might not get if you were acting for you know in a in a sort of um huge corporate team advising a bank where it's it might be that might be a little bit less face time um in esports and traditional sports you tend to be really you know uh working uh, sort of hand in hand with your, with your client and spending a lot of time liaising with them directly so being sort of approachable considerate um and just sort of and, and genuine goes a long way See, this is why you're Will, the nice guy, Della. <laughs> right, coming back to the point. No, no, I agree. So answer effectively, just make sure make sure you understand the no, sport or esport and be nice. No, it's. Re- I mean, really, I know that sounds so fundamental, right? So basic, people overlook it. But the reality is, again, executing, I would say to people with the sort of advice like that, kicking a football is easy, doing it well is a different thing, right? Or pick a sport, right? Like, you know, throwing a basketball is easy, doing it well, different thing, you know, 
saying that you are going to be present and open and transparent and engaging and develop meaningful relationships is easy to say doing it in practice under the heat of battle let's say or when things are in you know intense moments in time can be more challenging yeah and, I, and the reason i say it is because you should take if, if you are you know I've, i feel really lucky to work where i do and if, mm. if you are l- lucky enough to do so then then like it should be taken as given that you're good enough to do the technical stuff um yeah yeah because yeah, you wouldn't be there if you weren't so it's actually like you know in in ninety nine percent of cases, I, you know, you, you, the people that I well actually in every case, someone I work with here, absolute confidence in the technical product, and it's just about whether, um, you know, whether they've got the personality to really be able to, you know, um, uh, work closely with 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 clients on a sort of a day to day basis. Can you form the team relationship? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, you know, years ago, we did our first ever How to Come a Sports Story event, whenever it was, 2013 or something like that. And someone asked the question, and I was and I can't remember what, I was, like, I was moderating the session. But the one thing I said to people was like, look, if you're at one of the firms that are in this room, if you're already an established lawyer, people expect you to know the law. Mm. <laughs> like that's that's the minimum. That's not the benchmark of like, oh, I really know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, that that's taken as red right now. Can we move on to how you're gonna how that should be applied to my business, uh, or if you're an individual, what I'm doing? So I think it's really uh, fantastic advice. And you know, the other thing with that with advice is it's quite easy to follow. You know, yeah, exactly. Get, I, mean, yeah, actually, invest- I think Max. Um, mentioned to me when I was a trainee or an NQ it's like you want your clients to feel like they can pick up the phone to you and ask you pretty much anything and I think that's that's that is a, probably actually a much more articulate way of saying it than mm. my the spiel I've yeah. been um but yeah I think that's important so yeah well I was listening to um what was his name um Dallas Mavericks Who's the guy um, who runs the Dallas Mavericks? The, he's a tech investor as well. I think oh, yeah. He basically said, um, well, his name escapes me now. But anyway, he's, he's a, he, he basically said, you know, you're either, part, you're either causing me problems or you're providing me with solutions, right? <laughs> so you're one of the two. So what you're yeah. from that perspective is like, are you there to solve some problems for people? And if you're there to solve some problems, people are more likely to get in contact. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. As I said, I know your daughter's not very well, so <laughs> wishing her well. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're absolutely sleep deprived. Um, you know, really enjoyed getting your perspective on the the sector and seeing how it evolves. Hopefully, for people listening, it wasn't too. You know, we didn't get into to specifics legal, but I think more broadly for the for people who are listeners, I hope they appreciate you know a sort of uh, an assessment of a point in time of where you know the 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 sector could go and where it might evolve to and i think you know there's a lot of rich information within that that i you know i thoroughly enjoyed it if no if if everyone listening to it says like sean didn't ask any as many legal questions as he should have done i'm sorry i apologize i've really had a great time i hope you did too as long uh, as, long as you've you. enjoyed it sean then i'm happy <laughs> i was like great i've got my my notes now <laughs> that's brilliant um no but for everyone listening thank you so much for tuning in remember for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport go to lawinsport.com follow us on linkedin twitter soundcloud itunes and of course as we say if you liked what will said and on the basis of getting to know people and uh, building meaningful relationships 
tell him, <laughs> write to him, let him know, get in contact, put, you know, mention it on, on social media. And of course, if you like the podcast, thank you very much for following. Um, please do share it and give us a like on Spotify or iTunes or anything. It really does matter. Um, yeah. And of course, we've got a lot of content about esports on Law and Sport, including uh, the video that Will was in for the, the panel discussion that we had on esports for our annual conference. So tune into that. Other than that, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, wherever you are in the world. Hope you have a great day, evening, and thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.